poetry has become as important to me as any reading and contemplating I do, which is why I'm always eager to remind you about our ongoing initiative, the Poetry Radio Project. It's a place where you can discover the poetry that so many of our guests fold into their lives. And you can also delve deep into reading and listening to the many wonderful poets we've had on the show. Check out one of my favorites, Marilyn Nelson read for us, Love Song. You'll also find Naomi Shihab Nye, John O'Donohue, Laylee Long Soldier, and many, many more. All that at onbeing.org slash poetry. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Mary Carr. Listen to our produced show with her wherever you find your podcasts and, as always, at onbeing.org. All right, Isn't we should that... stop talking because let's just okay, let's, do the, let's do the official just in case okay, we then. wander into any important territory. Can you can he hear you? Uh, Paul? He just handed me a cup. Oh, he's just gone into the... There he is. I think that's what... I think the door opened, maybe. Oh, oh yeah, is the door open? I just open? was bringing her in her tea. I'm sorry. Okay. I can turn Krista down a little bit in the headphones, too. Thanks for the tea, Paul. I also... You know, I've interviewed Christian Wyman... And, um, oh, I love Christian. Yeah, so I, doll, and I also he invited me out to speak at that at at ISM, and then I I watched your um, you know I saw I saw you there, and I saw his introduction of you. And when I interviewed Christian, I felt like um, of all the people I'd spoken with, his that world he grew up in. That you know he he and I both grew up in that immersive religious world, which I know oh, you man, didn't, that's so but you hard. you well, recognized so did Phil. it. <laughs> You know, both of Phil's parents were Pentecostal ministers. Oh. And his mother was an actual evangelist. Yeah, well, you know, Pentecostals were ordaining women a hundred years ago. I mean, whatever you think of their theology, there was right? A, right? <laughs> right. Well, their politics have changed. Yes, they have. Um, <laughs> they have. But, well. yeah, you know, you got to love, you got to love old time. We got um, So, so... So you may know then that that I, I, I start my interviews by wondering about the spiritual background of someone's childhood, and clearly your and spiritual background expansively defined. And clearly your you didn't grow up your your spiritual background was not religious, um, and in fact, um, you know the stories that you've told in your memoirs that that so many people know. Uh, you know, have to do with a childhood that uh, was awash with a lot of violence and chaos. Not only not only violence and chaos, but plenty of that and rape and um, your your mother having a psychotic break and wielding a butcher knife at you. And so, right. so the question. So I want to ask if you, but if you think about what was the spiritual canvas kind of in and amidst that inside you, you know, and I'm sure you would answer this question differently at different points in your life. But how would you think about that now? A lot of terror. Yeah. 
It wasn't, it wasn't, it was a lot of terror mm. and fear and suffering and loathing and self-loathing and, you know, it's the great thing about a really miserable childhood is the rest of your life looks like you've improved things. <laughs> When really all you've done is grown up and gotten car keys and a credit card, you know. But you feel like you've made some great advance. Uh, just by virtue of growing up. Well, just by you don't live there anymore. Yeah. I mean, that was a smart thing I did. Yeah. And, and you, have, you have said, um, although, again, that was not a—there was not overt uh, spirituality in your childhood or religiosity. You wrote poets— were my first priests and poetry itself my first altar. Did you I think that's right? Yeah. Did you think of it that way then or or do you think of it that way in hindsight? Uh I think I always sort of did. Mm-hmm. I mean it was the place that you know, it was the uh I mean, you know uh it would make a lot of sense to Freud. I mean it was the place I had contact with both my mother and my father. Uh is around language in a way. I mean, obviously, we all have contact via language, but um, my father's stories and my mother's love of literature. Yeah. Which strikes me, as somebody who grew up in that part of the world, kind of, as really unusual that your mother had oh, that yeah. love of language. I mean, you talk about oh, being able God. to calm her down or draw her out of a sulk by reciting E.E. E. Cummings or A.A. A. Milne, but that's amazing to me. I know, right? Yeah. No, she's a, she was a marvel for that place and time. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, it was, you know, what would I have had to be? I don't know, a hooker, a serial killer, a poet. <laughs> you know, those, those are, that's kind of the lineup. <laughs> um, I, I have always thought of you as a memoirist first and a poet second. And as I mm-hmm. delved into this, I realized that that is a, that's not the way you see it. Um, that it's a common, I, I see a lot of people who interview you coming at you with that realization. Um, and also, I, heard, I saw you say to somebody else that it breaks your heart. Um, and I, a, I mean, yeah. no, nothing real. I mean, you know, it's hard to break my heart anymore. My mm-hmm. heart was so broken for so long, and it's so healed in some ways, I yeah. think. But have people tried to talk you? I mean, I, you know, the way I reacted to it when I saw you say that was, you know, but your, your prose itself is poetic, is 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 a form of poetry and good for me. Hmm? Yeah, <laughs> I see. Good for me. Yeah, I hope so. That'd be great. Well, and you also talk about um, you write about um, how as you were growing up in that chaotic childhood that all that you know yes poetry was your was your altar but that first person coming of age stories also gave you this hope as a child that you would come through. That you would get through it. Well, I don't know that I would go that far. Mm-hmm. I, I think I had a sense. Um, I mean, I read those memoirs starting obviously when I was very young because I wanted to know how you became a writer. Mm-hmm. I thought there would be something in there, you know, about how to get that done. And um, it seemed like such an exalted. I mean, I, I remember when my son was five, if you ask him what he wanted to be, he said, you know, a trapeze artist or a rabbi. And I was thinking, 
both of those things are more likely for him to have become uh, than I think for me to become a poet or mm. a writer, mm. uh, given where I grew up. Yeah. So uh, it was a, you know, I mean, I, I think I say somewhere in one of my books that when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I got in trouble for being mouthy, which often happened to me, but in a in a math class and and the my junior high school principal actually said this sentence to me. He said, if you persist in this dream that you're going to become a poet, you will wind up no more than a common prostitute. <laughs> I can imagine saying that to a little girl. No. Um, but, I, I mean, that's how unlikely it was. I mean, there was just, there wasn't, uh, other than in my house, there wasn't yeah. poetry anywhere. Well, I mean, on the other hand, I think the idiom of that place, uh, the, you know, my father's stories and the way pe- just the way people talked was super poetic, mm-hmm. very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a, you, you were writing in the Paris Review, and in, I, I so recognize this. You said people who didn't live pre-internet can't grasp how devoid of ideas life in my hometown was. Well, yeah, and how yeah. you how one just couldn't get books. Yeah, or you said the the bookstore sold Bibles the size of coffee tables. <laughs> right, but that was the book, and there, and you know, I I because my childhood was was the religiously immersive one in that part of the world. Um, spent a lot of time with the Bible and its poetry. You know, I mean, there was a lot in there, but you're right, there wasn't much else. Um, Offered. Right. I mean, you would hear about something. Mm-hmm. You would hear about a poet or, you know, if you if if like, in, you know, in my house, you'd read T.S. Eliot and Eliot would mention, you know, Mallarmé and Baudelaire or whatever, right, Valerie right. or whomever in the essays. And you couldn't find books by them. Yeah. You know, you couldn't. I had Shakespeare. I had I mean, in some ways I had that Riverside Shakespeare in my house. I probably read the way. Uh, those plays, the way, pe- the way people, you know, in other households were reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, both dark poetic books with a lot of uh, trouble. <laughs> um, yeah. And a lot of redemption. So. Yeah. Well, the, the full spectrum of the human drama, for sure. Um, it's... As I started, I I heard your interview with Terry Gross, and I um, I was I was so intrigued as you talked about your religious life um, now, um, and then when I started re- rereading you and reading reading the Art of Memoir, reading you know some of your newer works and, and lit, um, I I just found myself tracing um, kind of you know spiritual life as it has unfolded and um it seems to me also even and i don't i don't think i want to go here immediately but that that there's a sense in a sense in which many of the ways you talk about writing memoirs kind of it, there's a spiritual discipline to that um i think so. i think yeah. that's true i think that's really true i mean i in an age when even to use the word truth, it, or even to say the word truth, it always comes now with, with um, you know, finger squiggles around it. You know, it comes with quotes around it. Yeah. As though, how dare one presume to know the truth? But I, I believed that one could. I believed that, that 
I guess for me, having such complicated feelings about my my uh, much loved, uh, you know, fairly troubled family, um, I just felt like I had to figure out what had happened and why I felt so bad. Yeah. Or I just wasn't going to make it. I mean, it was either. So the idea of trying to, you know, kind of even believing that there was such a thing as truth and that it could could possibly in any way be knowable by a person um, through self-reflection and, you know, therapy and talking to people and fasting and prayer and, you know, talking to Jesus, eventually talking to Jesus, yeah. you know, that there, that there had to be some way of... Of that, the, I believe that you know that the truth would set me free. I believe that mm. I was a um, an early proponent of that idea, because as I said, you know, I was I was lied to so often and with such conviction by such really talented liars, <laughs> just some really able uh, able artist. Well, and the people who were supposed to be actually teaching you the truth about life, I mean, in a perfect world, right? Right. I mean, we're all lied to yeah. by our parents. <laughs> That's it. I mean, let's yeah. face it. We're, yeah. we're all lied to, either intentionally or not intentionally. Mm-hmm. But again, in an alcoholic family, I, I think you, you start with that big lie, you know, I'm not drunk. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just you're just told that so many times. Or everything's okay. Was the uh, Those are the two big ones. Mm-hmm. In a family where there's a, a lot of hard drinking, you know, people are always saying, Oh, it's fine, you know. It's going to be okay. No, everything's all right. But last night you were wagging firearms in our kitchen, Mom. Yeah. I mean, come on. So, um, right. so yeah, I guess I did. I had some belief that uh, that truth was a knowable thing. And, you know, again, my mother, you know, was a seeker. I mean, she she went back to college when I was a kid, and, you know, she studied philosophy. I mean— you know, she spent a lot, probably too much time for somebody as moody as she was with the French existentialist. But, um, mm. you know, and she did yoga. You know, nobody wow. did yoga. Wow. I mean, you know, you know, and she, you know, the, the few times she took us to church, she took us to the Christian Science Church, mm-hmm. um, which she didn't belong to because she didn't belong to anything. But, um, you know, she was a kind of a seeker. In a strange way, you know, she did read philosophy, and she was a a re. I guess all readerly people are seekers, aren't we? I mean, is that not true? Yes, and and also attending to interior life, which is not right. necessarily such an American thing to do. Right, it's very unseemly. Yeah, it's very unseemly. I mean, I think of. You know, Josh Shank has that great book, I think, about called Lincoln's Melancholy, about yes, Lincoln's right. depression and about the kind of and, – and I think, again, the, the blessing I, – I can see it now that I'm not in it, but the blessing of a really depressive early life and a really um, – I mean, I don't think my childhood – there were plenty of worse childhoods, but um, – uh, I think it does deepen you to to yeah. be dark minded. If it doesn't, yeah, and if it doesn't kill you, right? If it doesn't kill you, uh-huh. it does, and it gives you a lot of. I think if you're lucky, or if you come out the other end of it, it it uh, it's also brings you to compassion. I think for yeah. other people. So, when you say 
Um, in the art of memoirs, in some ways, writing a memoir is knocking yourself out with your own fist if it's done right. Um, what is that? What you're you're talking about that that hard place you have to go to? Well, I I think we remember uh, through a filter of of who we are now. Yeah. yeah. So we remember, you know, we don't remember being three feet tall and illiterate and flat broke, you know, as, as we are when we're all children yeah, um, and unemployed. You know, we, we remember, our, oh, well, I'm going to grow up and be okay and be competent. And so at some point, I think in every memoir, I have to disabuse myself um, or somehow by going back and writing things down, I uh, re-arrive at a place or at a self, uh, closer to a self in the past. Um that uh, not only remembers events, but can really feel myself inside a eight-year-old body or a ten-year-old body or a thirty-year-old body. You know, yeah. that can yeah. really feel what it's like to be uh, hungover when I, you know, I haven't had a drink in almost thirty years. So yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. it's it. it Going back in there is not uh, cheerful. It's also there's this phenomenon that you that you write about in yourself and also in your students that that when people first start writing, they're often actually not writing about the person they really are. Um, and you had this always, always you had this epigraph of, from Thomas Merton to the Art of Memoir, which is you know just a very poetic way of saying. You know, he said every he said every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. I wind my experiences around myself and cover myself with glory like bandages, in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world, as if I were as if I as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. But then, do we not even we we don't even know how to reach for. Uh, we don't know how to express that that true self. Well, we don't know what it is, mostly. I mean, yeah. I always say, um, it, it's, I mean, I, you know, I just put out that little book about, from a graduation yes, speech. Yes, I've got that. that yeah. That, now go that out blew, there. Now go out there. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, I think when I'm at some point, and I, I think this comes from, a, you know, trying to meditate over a period. I still think of myself as a rank beginner, but over a period of decades, I've been trying to do this. And if in those moments of terror or judgment of other people or of myself or thinking I know things I don't know. I mean, when I first got sober, I had this sort of Virgil, this kind of spiritual god through uh, God. I'm sorry, this kind of spiritual guide through the hell of of early sobriety, mm. who would say to me when I would tell her something I was afraid of, she would say, "What is your source of information?" And 99 percent of the time, it was I thought it up. Okay, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like the doctor called me and said that bruise is bone cancer. It's like I was sitting there and I looked at it and I thought, you know what, or you know, I. The, the guy with the Jaguar knew that I was in a hurry and got my parking place, uh, <laughs> right. but, you know, before I got there. And and the universe was conspired. I mean, I had all kinds of magical thinking. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think for me, the process of 
trying to become curious in those moments of real discomfort about what's going on. Um, it doesn't always free you from suffering per se, but um, I don't know. I, I have a girlfriend who's a mother with young children, and she called me one day to tell me she was had lost her mind. And she was incapable. She needed to call the police and check into a mental institution uh, because she had slapped one of her children who was little. I mean, yeah. you know, five. And um, I was like, well, yeah. You know, I can imagine anybody who's had one knows about wanting to slap one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they can yeah. they can call you poopy head at the wrong moment. You know, they can... Uh, but she said, no, no, you don't understand. I can't stop crying. I can't stop crying. I, I, I've apologized. I, I just, I really think I'm losing my mind. And I said to her, well, who's noticing that you're losing your mind? Right. And, and, and I think, and she said, huh. You know, I mean, I asked her that, and she actually thought about it for a minute. And I said, you know, that notice herself. It's easier to do with somebody else than the, with one's own moments of insanity. I said, you know, for me, that notice herself, that notices, uh, oh, I'm, I said, you know, first off, if you thought slapping your kid was a good idea, I'd be worried about you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like you're calling me to defend having slapped your kid. You're calling me because you're abject over having done it. And that means you're a good mother. You know, and second, stop apologizing. She doesn't even remember by this point right. that you hit her. Right. It's two hours later, right. and this is all about you and has nothing to do with her. And third, how did you get here? Well, I haven't slept. You know, I'm working full time. I've got two kids. I'm, I haven't eaten. It's like, yeah, okay, well, hmm. maybe have a sandwich, you know. I mean, maybe it's time to have a sandwich, you know, maybe— but just all, you know, I mean, for me, the voice, that's what my, the voice of God is, that's, the voice of God never gives me a long-term plan. It never helps me with any kind of um, lottery number or anything. But um, that voice that says, you know, <laughs> you need to sit down and have something to eat or it's not going to be good to be you anymore. And that notice, so just that that noticing in that note, in that noticing self, that that also is you, and and is God connected to that? Is God in that somehow for you, or, or close to that? I think not only not only is that also you. I think that's the real you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's the real you, and the frightened, angry self is often, you know, an animal self. Yeah, and that's us too. Obviously, I'm not trying to. Uh, say that you're, you know, the the devil made you do it, you know, and that you're somehow cut off from those other aspects of how you feel and behave, you know, you're responsible for all of it. But um but yeah, I I I think yeah, I think for me coming to have a place inside myself or or my spiritual practice or going to mass or uh taking communion or trying to be more mindful or praying, you know, just really trying not to kill everybody on the subway every day. I mean, that's the goal for me. <laughs> it's not lofty. I don't want to be Mother Teresa, you know. I don't want to be an asshole. 
I can't say that on the radio, can I? What, what else? That's can okay. I say? We can cut it out. Yeah, just don't worry. So speak, speak frankly, and we'll, we'll. Is there another word I can say? <laughs> I'm not actually sure about that one. We may that one may be on the uh, fence. Um, don't worry about it. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, some you'll figure it we'll out. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Okay. You'll say an, enough other interesting things. Um, I hope so. <laughs> without swearing, that we might be able to use. Um, um, you you know you said something, you spoke in a similar way in this in this book. Now go out there, actually, and the kind of subtitle is "And Get Curious," which was a graduation speech, right? Graduation taken from us. Right. Commencement they, address. Can, yeah. Can you believe they gave me a, an honorary degree? I mean, I'm so undegreeable. But they. Um, <laughs> yes, but I yes, can. I did, actually, <laughs> I was so fun. It was really fun. I. I dreaded it. I've never dreaded anything more than that graduation speech. Why? I mean, I, Why? Well, I mean, I if if you're a college professor, you you give talks all the. I mean, you know, what is a college professor? It's somebody who can talk for fifty minutes, and this I only had to talk for twenty. Um, but the audience was so diverse, and you know, you're trying to sort of inspire people and. Um, there had been a huge uproar that they were even having me be the commencement speaker because there had been a rumor on campus that it was supposed to be Jimmy Fallon, which was like a complete lie. <laughs> but you ask a bunch of college professors, do you want like the local poet or, uh, you know, old maid school teacher, or do you want Jimmy Fallon? It'll be Jimmy Fallon every time. So, um, so there were, like, protests, and people wrote the chancellor and said, you know, can't we afford a real graduation speaker? <laughs> Do we have to have this terrible. person? No, it was terrible. <laughs> it was a huge thing on the Internet around around Syracuse, like how awful this was, and mm. that I was going to be the commencement speaker. And um, so my level of anxiety when I was working on the speech, and then, as I often do once I've worked on a talk, I just— you know, at some point you have to just let go of the outcome and you say, look, you know, if they boo and they throw things, you know, it'll last for 20 minutes and then it'll be over and, you know, I'll have an anecdote. Um, <laughs> it'll be fine. I'll go back to my my life. Yeah. It, it's it's a short period of time. So it's a – but that was really sort of what I was expecting. So when I got such a great response, it was astonishing. Hmm. To me, it was completely unexpected and not, uh, and then to have it, you know, people want to look at it on the internet and have people want to publish a book of it and all yeah. of that was was surprising. So, um, well, but yeah, it's, the, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's wise. I mean, I so I was just kind of following on what you were just saying a minute ago about, um. About that, you know, that primal side of us, but it's not all of us, and it's not. I mean, you, you wrote, you, you said in this, and now go other. You said the opposite of love is fear, and you told these graduates that fear can take that expensively educated brain of yours and reduce it to the state of a dog growling over a bone. But you did say, right? ask yourself who's noticing um, how scared you are, and that that's where your soul is, and if you can get curious about it. You get less scared, which is. I think I think that's right. I yeah. mean, if you can just sort of see these scary events as um, kind of practice to notice 
what's going on. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because most of that feeling that you have so often when you're terrified, it really is the same feeling our you know Neolithic ancestors had when the saber-toothed yeah. tiger was bounding out of the. I mean, you feel like you're going to die. I mean, the feeling people have when they're heartbroken. Or, or they're terrified is, I'm going to die. I will die from this grief. I will die from this fear. And um, if you can wake up into it and look at it and just sort of say, well, yeah, I'm going to feel this way for X amount of time. What's causing this? It mm-hmm. is. And, and accept that it's a normal part. I mean, I think we live, especially in this country, with all these kind of grinning, airbrushed, public, I mean, even look at our politicians. They're just so, I'm not going to go into it, but it's just the whole glossy media blitz that we're constantly exposed to. I mean, one one feels one's butt lie down on the back of your leg. (laughs) You just think, well, this isn't right. There's something wrong about this. Yeah, and I... Something I like about the the way you you talk about getting real or, or or getting in touch with your true self is also you're not you know you're proposing very gentle ways in like not you're not saying analyze it or interrogate it you're saying you know just noticing getting curious those are soft right. those are soft actions they're they're much closer and easier to get at than attacking a problem right. <laughs> But it's also one's instinct, mm-hmm. if you are afraid, yeah, is, if you're to, anxious. is, is mm-hmm. to make it stop. Right, right. If you're afraid, if you're anxious, if you're angry, if you're heartbroken, yeah. one's fear is, you know, one's instinct around it is usually violent. Right. And that interior violence is so, uh, I mean... I mean, the problem with being judgmental, I says one of the most judgmental people on the planet, yeah. is that the voice you use to criticize everybody else is the exact same voice you use to criticize yourself with. So, yeah, if we could just walk around in our separate little bubbles uh, throwing lightning bolts at people who got our parking places or got ahead of us in Starbucks, um, uh, you know, yeah, I, I suppose... But there is there is something about trying to find a gentler way uh, to respond to what normally makes us feel, or makes me anyway, have a violent reaction, which is get me out of here, get me away from this, make this stop. Yeah. If you can find a way to occupy it. Uh, it's also, I, I think you find yourself saying uh, true things. I remember... I remember when I first met my agent and I was a young writer and I wanted so desperately to have an agent and to write a memoir and and uh, be able to buy a Toyota. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that's what I wanted was people to buy a used car but not have to take public transport to my kids after school. Hmm. And And I just remember her saying to me, oh, you should write a memoir. And I was like, yeah, well, I don't know how to do that. And she says, well, you just write a proposal and send it to me. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm a poet. I don't know what that would look like. And I would never have said that. Instead, I would have faked that I knew what she was talking about. 
And then as the date came when I was supposed to give it to her, I would have found a reason not to do it or to get drunk or to, Mm -hmm. you know, not show up, just not even try in a way. Uh, And before you met her, before you really embarked on this this write this career of writing, um, or maybe even really saw yourself as a writer. You 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 pretty much. I don't know. There's somewhere that you you note the the connection between breakdown and breakthrough. Um, <laughs> right. Is it a nervous breakdown or a nervous breakthrough? <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's a good question. Uh, yeah. Because um, you kind of you had both, right? Well, I think every nervous breakdown is a nervous breakthrough if you let it be. I really do. I really believe that. I believe that it's the old Hemingway saw of, you know, all of us are broken and, 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 you know, you can, some of us get stronger in the broken places. Yeah. I mean, here's something else you said. You called the place you went um, the mental Marriott. Um, it was and you you in the, in this graduation speech now which isn't now this book now go out there you wrote the loony bin is where I learned that as deep as a wound is that's how deep the healing can be. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, if you think of it that way, I mean, however high the fever is that you have when it breaks, you're you're that much, you've come that much further forward. And the sense of resilience one has, I think. I mean, I'd spent my whole life, my mother, you know, was in a loony bin when I was little. I'd spent my whole life thinking, I'm going to go crazy like my mother. And then my kid was, I don't know, three, and I went crazy like my mother. And um, there I was, you know, checking into a mental institution. It was such a relief. (laughs) You know, I was like, no, but I got there, and it was... You know, it was a lot of codependent nurses asking me how I was feeling and <laughs> trying to make me little cups of tea and, and uh, you know, sitting around rooms with people, you know, moving your Monopoly tiles real slow. I mean, it was it was a, um, a restful, quiet place uh, where I got to say, yeah, this is – it's hard to be me. It's really – it's been hard to be me, everybody. Remember I was saying that before? Well, this here we have external evidence. That I that I'm uh, I might not be up to it, and what yeah, and the word quiet actually comes up a lot when you're writing about that time, and there were there were a lot of hard things you were having to face. Your marriage was failing, but but you taught you I mean, in, in quite a few places you use the word quiet. I think there's this one place I think you say that there, you know, you started to write differently. That there was a polished quiet around the writing, which is such a lovely image. Um, I think I just got I just. You know that idea of of um, trying to say something small and simple and as true as possible. Yeah. Just the uh, really, in some ways, starting to write about what I wanted to write about when I was in the in the fourth grade. I mean, I I have that journal from 1965, so I was 10 years old, where I say, you know, when I grow up, I will write one half poetry and, and one half autobiography. And <sighs> and um, what else do I say? I say, I'm not very successful as a little girl. When I grow up, I will probably be a mess mm. and um, or something like that. And, and uh, so, yeah, I just started, instead of trying to act like I knew what was going on, to write as if I were a mess, uh, which is how I felt. Mm. 
uh, it suddenly became, I wasn't, there just felt like there was less posing to it. I mean, obviously, when you write anything, you're constructing a voice and you're constructing a self and there's artifice to it. Um, you're trying to make the sentences sound more interesting than you are in your normal life. So, um, uh, but I, I did feel like I got closer to who I really was at some point, and and I stopped trying to sound like Nabokov, say, and started <laughs> trying to sound like, you know, who's this genius, and started trying to sound like, you know, this, you know, aborigine from East Texas. <laughs> I was with. Um a couple of weeks ago, I was with. Do you know Sylvia Borstein? She's a Buddhist teacher. She's no. there. She's wonderful. She's she's on the West Coast, and um, I did a little bit. Just as I did some just some sitting with her, and uh, she introduced this concept concept which seemed so radical to me, um, uh, which was about um, not so much having a mantra or even following your breath, but about. Sitting and ex- just kind of noticing, taking mm. in the natural peace and ease of your mind. Which, okay, I know, and that's how I felt, right? Because <laughs> you're like the natural peace right. and ease of my right. mind. Well, so and uh, you know that was such a crazy, you know, just just such a foreign idea to me. Um, but then. If you think about it that way, right? Like if you if you think that all the noise and all the chaos actually is, you know, something you're doing, that it wasn't there. Right. It's not pre-existent. It doesn't have to be that way. And I was thinking about that as I was reading you and reading you about being at the Mental Marriott and 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 what settled. It feels like you started to that natural peace and ease of your mind, which you've never been able to allowed to experience. Uh, was present to you in a way, or at least, I mean, well, I think I started in moments, praying. right? Do we? You started I, praying, I, yeah. I started praying. Mm-hmm. I got on my knees. I mean, you know, it's, you don't have to be, even I, you know, after whatever, 35 years of agnosticism, uh, you know, when you land in a, in a mental institution, <laughs> you have to say to yourself, you know, my ways of, wor- of moving through the world yeah. are not succeeding. Yeah. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm I'm in custodial care. Right. People won't let me have sharp knives. There there's yeah. there's or flames. I mean there's there's a reason uh that people are looking at me with concern. So, mm-hmm. um I love that though. I, I but I, I remember thinking at the time asking this woman what she prayed for. And I would pray to stand it. I would pray to let me get through a day. Let me just get through this day without killing myself or anybody else. And I remember this woman saying, I, I thought of that when you said, she said, I said, what do you pray for? She said, oh, I pray every day for a joyful day that's full of serenity. <laughs> really? Yeah, right. <laughs> you can pray for Tell that? another one, yeah. Well, so what happened when you, I want to know what happened with Sylvia Borstein when you started. Well, okay, well, so, I don't know if all this will make it into the show, but I will share. So, so once she told this story, um, which to me also I couldn't stop thinking about, which was about, you know, 20 years ago, she was watching Larry King interviewing a Swami, you know, some kind of wise man. And Larry King, after talking to this man for a while, he leaned forward and he said to him, how did you get it so quiet in there? And the Swami said, it is quiet in there. We make it noisy. 
So, so I'd been thinking about that for a couple of days. And then comes this morning where she says, all right. She said, today, all I want you to do is just kind of feel the natural peace and ease of your mind. And it was, it was, it was, you know, I had, my story is different from yours, but there, you know, I also, that's not even something I ever probably wanted or thought would be interesting for one thing, right? Well, right. It Um, sounds boring. Yeah, it sounds boring. But it was, it's, it's actually there, right? I mean, I don't think, you know, I couldn't hold it for more than a few minutes, but. um, It's up in there. Yeah. It's up in there. That that peace and ease. (laughs) Well, it's like, it's elemental, right? It's like all these layers are on top of it, but. but seriously, when you know those descriptions you have in, in in lit of then you know your marriage is troubled, but even even in the midst of that, you are you're taking it in differently, right? And then how the writing, how you started to be able to write. Yeah, I I love that. I, I mean, I love that thing Thomas Keating says about uh, practicing uh, mindfulness and mm. and that you, it's sort of like, you know. There's a bunch of water that has mud and silt in it, and the longer you practice, the more that just kind of settles to the bottom. Mm, mm-hmm. And you don't feel any peace. You might practice for days and weeks, and it's just cloudy and noisy. And he says, what you don't realize is that healing is happening. Mm. That that stuff, by doing that, you are settling it. But you don't notice it because it hasn't settled yet. You have to just, that how how difficult just to keep sitting there. Yeah. Yes. Um, and unfamiliar, right? Unfamiliar oh, just, yeah. to, just to sit with it yeah. and let, and let there not be a kind of a... Um, right, because I would rather, you know, mm-hmm. snort cocaine and, you know, <laughs> make out with the FedEx guy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah right? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, the story of how you 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 came... I mean, this was interesting to me because I hadn't put all this together until I was really reading kind of in this into the sweep of your work um, that you that kind of falling apart and 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 coming and and I think and becoming spiritually awake and it, I don't know whether you would have called it that or or not and becoming a writer becoming the writer you'd wanted to be maybe dreamed you could be and then also. Um, in that in that same chapter, um, being baptized in the Catholic Church at forty. Well, yeah, I mean that was, was some years after that. I okay. think I was I was probably let's see, that would have been nineteen eighty nine. I think I was in the bin in nineteen ninety. So it was maybe six years later. Okay. So I've been mm-hmm. I've been practicing. I've been meditating and praying for. Okay. Four or five years before my son came in in his little Spider-Man pajamas and said, you know, I want to go to church. And I said, darkly, why? And he said, to see if God's there. Yeah. You know, which was kind of the only sentence he could have said that would have got me up off my butt, Mm. away from the New York Times and that bagel, (laughs) and uh, into a church somebody told me we could go to, you know. Yeah. Yeah, um, you you made this kind of public confession of your Catholicism in Poetry Magazine in two thousand five, and um, although you had you, you you talk you you write about how poetry always seemed intellectually respectable, uh, where religion wasn't, 
Oh, oh yeah, I right. Mean, being yeah, being a Catholic is like being, yeah, right. You know, oh my God. Yeah. So it's, even it's so, confessing your, your Catholicism in Poetry Magazine was. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> it was anathema. I mean, that's where you know that's where T. S. Eliot first published Proof Rock. That's where mm-hmm. all the dark and and uh, you know French influenced symboliste for the past century. Uh, Blazed a trail into existential misery. <laughs> I mean, you right, know, for, right. for me to come in and be Catholic, oh my God, it was bad enough being a Texan and then a redneck <laughs> and then not educated, and then this just proved out all my detractors. You know. Oh yeah, here's what you wrote: to confess my unlikely Catholicism in poetry. Feel, <laughs> I think we can put this on public radio. Feels like an act of perversion, kinkier than any dildo wielding dominatrix could manage on HBO's Real Sex Extra. <laughs> God, I wrote that. Gosh, how dare I? But, but you, but there is such. Um, oh, what's the word I want to use? I mean, poetry and prayer and liturgy are right. so much of a piece, right? I mean, right. they're so kindred to each other, and it's it's also it's also. I mean, I remember when I first went to the Catholic Church. Which I did. I took my son. He was the one who wanted to go to church, and I, I sat with a stack of papers and graded them in the back. I had a latte. I'm not even making this no. up. I brought mm-hmm. a latte. I sat in the back, and wow. He was in Sunday school, and I was just cynically there, uh, marking time, and um, uh, something about the faith of the people. It wasn't the spectacle or the. You know, Walter Pater and all those aesthetes, you know, always talked about the grandeur and the ritual and all the gold stuff and and all of that. None of that I cared about. I mean, I care about more now maybe just because I've gotten used to it. But at the time, I was kind of repelled by it. Um, but just people saying their prayers. People saying, you know, please pray for my yeah. daughter who's having surgery. People bringing hope and terror into a public forum and saying, I'm afraid and I, I need these things to happen for in order to go on. And, and isn't that what poetry is? I mean, poetry is that, is that uh, place for the, you know, most disturbed among us, you know, try to find the most exalted language. Uh, to convey those hopes and those despairs, you know, yeah. or that desperation. Um, hang on, I just got a, a message from behind the glass that they want to adjust your microphone, I think. What did I do? Oh, I moved back. Don't move. I'm a, uh, when I'm sitting, you're more comfortable leaning back, so what I want you to do is to pull your chair forward so you can still lean back. All righty then. One more inch. Okay. okay. So we have to go back and say everything all over. No, no, no. Again. We don't. We don't. We don't. Uh, yep. Okay. 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 <laughs> all righty then. Yeah. If you need another cup of tea to make up for that. Good. <laughs> okay. Okay. Is he gone? No. Uh, no, he's okay. still fondling right. my mic. <laughs> <laughs> there he goes. There he goes. Okay. Um. Well, and. Uh, so I, you know, I was also not religious for a long time, and then and then went to divinity school in my thirties, and um, 
And one of the things that shocked me in a lovely way was how the Psalms, you know, which are this poetry and prayer book at the center of the Bible. I mean, I mean, they bring that is that is they are you know so much about bringing every every all the mess every dark um instinct in human human life from murderous rage right to right com- ex- and rage at god yeah to I mean, into the presence of god right and and so just what you're saying i mean but i don't think um that's not actually something we've always done i, I mean i didn't grow up doing it in church but it is right. there in the they text well, you were you were the one of those nice Protestant girls. Yeah, that's right, <laughs> weren't you? Yeah, and also the whole enterprise was about, uh, you know, suppressing or hiding these right. messy things, sinful things, trying to make right. sure they wouldn't happen, which was a lost cause. Yeah, that's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's. I think I was lucky that I converted when I was so old because. Mm. All the shame and stuff that everybody else felt at confession, I was so beyond all that. Mm. I was like, "Oh, try you want to try to you want to try to make me feel ashamed? I've been ashamed all my life. <laughs> you can't make me feel more ashamed." So I, I want to read this um, from Saint Augustine's "City of God," which you put at the at the top of the chapter of one of the chapters in Lit, which talks about where you're talking about becoming religious. And um, to me, this is just such a beautiful um, demonstration of, you know, what we're talking about, the poetry that is there in deep in the heart of the tradition. Um, Late have I loved you, O beauty, so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you, for behold, you were within me and I outside. And I sought you outside, and in my unloveliness fell upon those lovely things which you have made. You were with me, and I was not with you. I was kept from you by those things. Yet had they not been in you, they would not have been at all. You called and cried to me to break open my deafness, and you sent forth your beams, and you shone upon me and chased away my blindness. You breathed fragrance upon me, and I drew in my breath and now do pant for you. Isn't that great? I got yes. chills when you read that. And now do pant for you. Good old St. Augustine. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> Probably our first sex addict. Right? <laughs> That's right. Well, that and was actually... my fa- Yeah, it was my favorite line of his, give me chastity, Lord, but not yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, which is, an, is a good segue to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is your notion of sacred carnality in the art of memoir. It's a little bit of a stretch from St. Augustine being the first sex addict, but, but I do love that language and talk about what you, what you are thinking when you talk about sacred carnality in the art of memoir. I mean, what I liked about the Catholic Church that I didn't find in, in uh, you know, say in the Protestant tradition, which in some ways you would think would be more suited to me. They have women priests. They're not so doctrinaire. They're not, you know, they fake that they don't believe what their doctrine says more easily. Um, uh, you know, they're quote-unquote progressive in some ways. Um, there's a body on the cross. Um, yeah. Even just being in Mass that you stand up and kneel down, uh, that you move in unison. Yeah. 
that I know a lot of cradle Catholics complain about how sheep-like you feel or they're like dumb cattle or or something like that. But I sort of found it like it's like being in, you know, hip-hop class. <laughs> you know, when you move like everybody, you kind of feel like you are like them. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, and the idea of of uh, that we're hunks of meat, you know, incarnate, yeah. you know, in meat, um, mm. that uh, that it's not metaphorical. The idea of Jesus and the Eucharist—it's not a metaphor that you're going to be renewed. It's it's not a metaphor of His body or His teaching, quote unquote, or His love or whatever. It's His body. Yeah. That's His body. Is uh, is what is what that's supposed to be about? It's so lurid, um, and I remember looking at the at the body on the cross and saying to my son that I don't even remember whether I ever wrote about this or not. But I remember looking at it before we were baptized and saying, you know, I don't get this whole crucifixion thing. It's so awful. I mean, this suffering, beaten. You know, critter, you know, nailed up there. It's just so gross. You know, why don't they just have, you know, you say the jump rope rhymes and then you're redeemed. <laughs> and my kid who was young, like maybe, I don't know, eight or nine, said, who would pay attention to that? Right. <laughs> you know, and he said, this is like uh, pulp fiction. Um, hit my mother, the one time I left him with her, had let him watch Pulp Fiction when he was like seven years old. <laughs> And he said, this is like Pulp Fiction. It's just like, you know, everybody is going to gawk at this. And and then I suddenly thought that whole idea of I did this for you. I mean, my idea of hell is somebody saying, look what I did for you, Hmm. you know, and suddenly you realize it's marketing. What else would we pay attention to but as human beings, but this grisly, awful, morbid thing, Uh, this kind of suffering that would say that our suffering— I understand. I mean, you're not going to look at that and say, oh, you don't know about suffering. You're God. What do you know about suffering? You're going to look and say, oh, you were a hunk of meat like me. Oh, wow. That's a a radical. That idea of descending theology of of the spirit being in this, these hunks of flesh. It's a, it's a, wow. It's a big deal. Yeah. You know, you, um, you talked. We talked a little bit about truth when we started speaking a little while ago, and how what a kind of troublesome concept it is for modern people. Um, whether there is any such thing as truth, and as a memoirist, I mean, you work so intimately and and honestly, um, kind of being honest about the complexity of how. You know what you what you remember at any given moment. The truth that you're remembering at any given moment is shifting depending on who you who you have become, right? What you can right. see, right? But I wonder how. Um, but in 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 Christianity, in Catholicism, um, I mean, in in religion, there there religion works with truth. Um, so how do you how do you think about how does your your Catholicism uh, flow into your sense of what truth is, how to work with that as a modern person. Say that again, that last part. How, how being Catholic 
um, you know, how your reverence for some something like what you were just describing, like, uh, what did you, uh, um, it's a big deal, right? I mean, we, we're talking about something that is, I mean, even the incarnation, especially the incarnation, is on the one hand the most literal, concrete, elemental image you could have, but it's uh, it's absolute mystery too. But it's in right. but in Catholicism, it's it's in the realm of truth. It's just so. I mean, how do you? How I mean, I wonder if you have conversations about things like this, um, you know, with with people who aren't religious and who are, but who are very sophisticated and intellectual, and and both. Yeah. I've, I've done both. I've done both. But I I remember before I did um, the Ignatian exercises, mm-hmm. which I did like I don't know, probably around two thousand ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand. Um, it was very all very metaphorical for me. Yeah. It was all very groovy, kind of new agey. Resurrection was, you know, starting over in some kind of hippy dippy way, and um, in Ignatian spirituality, there's a thing you do where you compose a scene with your body, with all the senses. Um, the, the compose is the um, is the way Ignatius Saint Ignatius writes about it. It's like you, what can you if you're at the nativity, if you're at the crucifixion, what can you smell? What do you touch? What does the cloth feel like on your skin? What do you you know hear? Um, what do you feel? Um, you you try to put yourself bodily. Right. Using your senses into passages from the scripture, as as I understand it from my friend George Saunders, who's a Tibetan Buddhist, and uh, with a pretty serious practice, I think um, it's it's not unlike something or some strands of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. That idea of being, you know, putting yourself in a sensory way, a visualization. Right. Uh, with using the senses and using the body. Um, it's a very powerful practice uh, to take a passage from a, you know scripture and try to ask the Holy Spirit to put you somewhere, to place your mind and your senses in another place. I mean, it's a very radical, dangerous kind of prayer to make. And... I did this over 30 weeks, um, and they give you a lot of different methods of prayer. And somewhere in there, all of the stuff that had been metaphorical became very actual for me. Mm-hmm. The idea of, of uh, my sense of Jesus. I didn't like Jesus when I became Catholic. I, I came in on the Holy Spirit. I came mm-hmm. in on the... You know, kind of, which is a female pronoun. You know, in the Greek scripture, and you know, I got—I was kind of valley girl about it. Um, and then I got that sense of Jesus that um, I just noticed that the people who are always doing, you know, running the soup kitchens and and uh, you know, taking care of the babies from El Salvador and bringing in orphan, you know, doing all the good stuff, and who don't seem really angry. And crazy, and kind of pissed off, hmm. and really pious. They seem kind of realistic. Always talked about Jesus all the time. So I thought, I've got to get on this Jesus boat. You know, I've got to get it with this Jesus program. 
Um, and somewhere in there, uh, all of that, beca- I, I just found that I was able to practice it. Do I doubt? All the time. Mm-hmm. Sure, there are days that I wake up. I mean, to me, um, being a Catholic is like any spiritual practice. It's a practice. It's not something you believe. It's not doctrine. Doctrine has nothing to do with it. It's a set of actions. Yeah. You know, everybody talks about the doctrine. Do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? What do you do on a day? Yeah. You know, do you get on your knees? Do you uh, try to practice charity? Do you try to apologize for your mistakes? Um, Are you trying to live a life uh, that, you know, is less shameful than the one the day before? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) You know. So I think think that idea of sacred carnality comes in again that, I mean, right, so the truths that— that the educated among us can get so hung up about and un, uh, kind of uncomfortable with asserting are quite are cerebral, and you can debate them right in there about if, so, if something's factual. But you're talking about embodied truth, the which is apprehended and lived. And how are you going to act? I mean, people talk to yeah. me all the time. I'm friends with Philip Roth, who's you know, obviously doesn't believe in God, but. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he said, well, you know, it's easy. he's 83, he talks about dying. He said, well, it's easy for you. You know, you're, you know, you're 60, you're Catholic, you believe in this afterlife. I'm like, look, I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, the veil is going to be lifted and I'm going to be, you know, flying through the air with a harp, you know, with my mommy and daddy. I mean, that, I, I, be- I do believe there is something that happens after death. I don't, know what it means. And it's not my business. It's not what I'm supposed to be thinking about yeah. right now. I'm I'm just not in charge of that. I'm having a hard enough time <laughs> just getting through the day. So for me, it's very, uh, it's all about practice and practicality and trying to be uh, present, trying to be awake. And that means getting under that fear and anxiety. I mean, for me, being Catholic or having a meditative or spiritual practice is all about just trying to delude myself a little less. It's not about living in this fantasy la-la where the guy with the white beard is going to yeah. you know, lift me up on a cloud. It's None of that does me any good, thinking about this. I don't need that stuff. Other people can think that way or whatever, but I need to get under that anxiety, under that fear, and try to be present and try to be guided uh, by something bigger than the part of me that wants to, you know, French kiss my FedEx guy. (laughs) You know, I mean, it just does. I need help. I need help. Krista. So, so, you know... You're so hard on yourself um, in your writing, and or, and you t- you write about being hard on yourself, and and all the way through, uh, all all across your writing, you describe yourself as neurotic, nail bitey. That's a good, um, big adjective. Worrier. Um, I'm a worrier. Yeah. I'm a fretter. Yeah, fretter, and uh, and I mean, you know, even what you just said, you're so you're so attentive to the struggle 
um, of being alive and, I don't know, let's say being true to whatever your true self is. But I, I do wonder, uh, and I guess I ask this kind of hopefully. I'm just want to say this. Like, I, I think um, as somebody who reads you, I... Uh, it's hard, it's hard to read how hard you are on yourself, right? So, oh, but can I say I yeah. think I'm less hard on myself than I was well, even when I wrote. That's my what last I wanted book. to ask. I wanted to ask yeah. if as you as you get older, if you're if you're becoming kinder to yourself. <laughs> I've got to tell you, I I would not trade. Um, I would not trade the age I am now. Mm. I would not be younger. I would not be a week younger than I am. I. Because I do feel I'm, I've, uh, you can't be compassionate to other people unless you're compassionate to yourself. Yeah. You can't, you can't love other people unless you love yourself. You can't, um, unless you have empathy for yourself and your own suffering and your own peccadilloes, you're not going to have it for anybody else. So, um, yeah, I mean... It, it took me a long time, obviously, to come to that, and I go in and out of it. But yeah. I have a lot more presence and a lot more joy. I eat a lot more chocolate. I, <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, my my head is a lot quieter mm. after all of this. You know, the I don't know the thirty years of prayer, the in sobriety, the you know. 20 years of being Catholic, the, you know, uh, I'm, I marvel and wonder a lot. Mm. I think I spend a lot of time uh, kind of astonished uh, by the human comedy. I mean, the hilarity of it uh, and the beauty of it and just the simple nobility of most people, you know, trying to get by. Yeah. It's a it's a pretty it's a pretty thing to watch. Mm-hmm. Um the last line of The Art of Memoir, you write, um, none of us can never know the value of our lives or how our separate and silent scribbling may add to the amenity of the world, if only by how radically it changes us one and by one. Um, you're writing to other people, but you know, I, I I feel like you that speaks also to to the fact that even as you do that work you're doing on getting by, um, being better, you know, trying to be better today than yesterday. There's there is also this there's this social good. There's this larger. There are these larger ripple effects that get set in motion, even by something. I mean, this is kind of a great mystery of life, even even by something like writing memoir about the very particular world in which you grew up, the very particular parents you had. Right, what Faulkner would call your little postage stamp of reality. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one thing I say to my friends who are atheists, you know, I say, look— why don't you, I mean, you think I'm so full of horse dookie. Why don't you pray every day for 30 days and see if your life gets better? And my guess is that it will um, just because if you think, I mean, you know, let's say there's not a God. Let's say I die and there's not a God and the worms eat me and that's the end of it. Uh, being daring to hope every day, it's much it's much more radical, 
I think, to hope uh, than to live in the despair I was born to. I think it's much more dangerous. Uh, I remember asking Tobias Wolff when he saw his movie of this boy's life, you know, that great memoir. Uh, was it hard to watch? I watched it. I sat behind him and his family, and his mother was there. And I said, boy, I said, that was so, I cried. I said, that was so hard for me. Was it hard for you to watch? He said, oh, it was really hard. I said, what was the hardest? And I was thinking, you know, when his stepfather is beating him and he's a young Leonardo DiCaprio, he said, oh, no, that didn't bother me at all. He said, it was the hope. Mm. It was when we're singing Christmas carols, thinking, oh, this is going to be great. Mm. And we have have this awful, <laughs> awful family. <laughs> Right. And uh, it's much more radical, much more daring, and much more dangerous to hope. I think you've said similar things, that it's easier to write about those terrible, dramatic moments and harder to write about tenderness. Oh, yeah. Happiness writes, yeah, happiness writes white, as the de Montherland quote. Uh, Mm. It it doesn't really show up on the page. Mm. Well, I feel like you've 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 said this in a number of ways, but I I do want to just kind of ask as we close um, how you would start to put words around this vast question of you know what this um, sweep of your experience as a memoirist with the life you've lived um, as a poet and just as a human being like what what you you know how you would start to talk about what. You've, you've learned or are learning still about what it means to be human. Maybe that's surprised you as you've gone along. Uh, there's more joy than I know. Mm. And uh, the less scared I am, the more joy there is. Um, uh, the, less, the, the less in my head I am, the more south of my neck I live my life, the yeah. more awake I am, the more... Just simple joy there is. Um, people always talk about the sunset and all that. So I don't get any of that. I don't. I have zero feeling for nature. But just, you know, watching the, you know, old lady with the walker on my way to the studio, you know, get off the bus in front of me and just watching how it was just so heroic. Mm-hmm. I was just looking at it thinking this is... You know, Homer wrote about this. I mm-hmm. mean, just somebody struggling to to uh, move down the damn road, you know, with all this effort all by her little, little ancient self. Good for her. You know, it was just pretty to watch. Um, well, Mary, this has just been so beautiful, and I can't thank you enough. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me. I've always wanted to get to meet you. I'm so excited. That <laughs> next time you're in New York, let's... Let's have a cup of joe. Or I something. would I would love to do that. And I'm I bet we know other people in common. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Hello. Oh, okay, sorry. I'm just um, one of my producers is asking a question behind the glass. So I'm gonna listen to her for a minute and then what was like Okay. Okay. Um Um If so uh, I'm curious about, as a poet and a writer, if there are uh, parts of the scriptural text or passages that are, have, are that you that you that inform you or that you work with or that you get inspiration from. 
Yeah, I mean, I read the liturgy every day. You do? Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's so cornball, isn't it? I read the liturgy. And, um, yeah, I mean, my favorite psalm is the hanging psalm. I think I, I, think I, I write about it in, in, uh, in Lit. Um, I found it in my mother's childhood Bible marked in blue chalk. Oh, yes. Right. Such a beautiful psalm, you know, cleanse me with hyssop, you know, is it mm. hyssop, hyssop, whatever mm-hmm. the hell it is. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Take away my stone heart and give me a new heart. I mean, what is that But saying but, um, you know, make me present? Yeah. And I remember that part in the book where you kind of discovering those passages underlined in your mother's young hand. Her little bitty baby hand, yeah. you know, from like 19, you know, 30 or something. Mm-hmm. And then me finding it, mm-hmm. you know, in like 1999, 98, whatever mm-hmm. it was. I know, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, um, we'll let you know when we're airing this. And I'm just, it's just been such a pleasure. And I do plan to find a way to meet you one of these days. Thank yeah, you. let's do it. Let's okay. Next time you're in New York. Where okay. do you live, by the way? I live in Minnesota. We have our studio in Minnesota. In Minneapolis. I used to live in Minnesota. We I, oh, I saw that. You went to McAllister, at least for I a little did. while, right? I did, for a little while. <laughs> do, you, do you ever come to Minneapolis? Uh, only, on book, only on book tour. Okay. All right. Well, um, yeah, we'll... We'll, we'll stay in touch, and um, I'll, I'm, it's going to be so great to put this out. Okay, we'll have a hoot. I can't wait. Thanks okay. for having me. All right. All right, yeah. my dear. Yeah. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye.